0: From Pacifico Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan,
1: And I am Mira Nabulsi. This week, we speak with award-winning Lebanese filmmaker Nadine Labake about her Academy Award-nominated film Capernaum, which won the Jury Prize at the Cannes Film Festival in 2018.
2: The film is actually about a boy who's 12 years old who sues his parents for giving him life. And in the film, you start understanding what made him get there, what made him take that stand and st- stand in front of the judge and say the things he had to say.
1: Later in the program, Isa Gulitzan Farajaje joins us to talk about his collaboration with Aswat, the Bay Area premier Arab music ensemble. We talk to him about his research and the upcoming Aswat concert of Sufi music from the Arab world. Do stay with us. Last year, Lebanese director Nadine Labaki received the jury prize at the Cannes Film Festival for her moving film, Capernaum, which has been also nominated for the best foreign language film at this year's Academy Awards in Hollywood. Capernaum, which in Greek means disorderly collection of objects or a giant mess, tells the story of 12-year-old Zane, a boy growing up in the slums of Beirut. I think when you live in a country like
2: Lebanon and when you're exposed daily to different kinds of injustices, whether it's towards children that are working, that is part of your daily life, because it's a site that you see growing every day and that is becoming almost part of the setup of your city. Those children who work, uh, who s- either beg or uh, have very difficult jobs, uh, children that don't go to school, that spend their days in the streets. Whether you expose also to the problem like foreign domestic workers that you come across every day, and that you see every day, but that you almost treat as invisible. I'm talking about this whole community of invisible people that, for me, at some point, I felt the need to talk about, because this is how it all started. You know, when you start thinking, what does it feel to be invisible? What does it feel to be completely non-existent? And I felt part of the society that keeps living in parallel with those communities that live in complete invisibility because of the fact you know, that they're illegal, they don't have papers, they're migrant workers, they're refugees, they're poor, they haven't been registered, they're stateless. Those belts of misery that surround our cities and our societies and that the system completely excludes to the extent that they become invisible, they become non-existent.
0: Did you see this project as something that would address a universal problem that we are increasingly facing? Or this was something that you kept noticing kept seeing happening and continuing to happen in Lebanon. And then you thought that you have to pay attention to what's happening in your own country and society.
2: I think it's not only a message to Lebanese. I think this is something that any big city of the world is facing right now. We're not only talking about a Lebanese, specifically Lebanese problem. Maybe in Lebanon, you feel it a little bit more because you live in proximity with those belts of misery. It's like Lebanon is such a small country that everything is almost intertwined. So I think you feel it more closely, but it's not only a Lebanese problem. This is a problem that any big city of the world is facing right now. And the systems are not finding solutions. I mean, I can't imagine that now, at this day and age, we are still in that absurd situation where you need to have a paper to prove that you exist. And if you don't have it, you're completely invisible from the system and excluded from the system even though you're here you're flesh and blood you do exist but the bureaucracy has has eaten everything up to the extent that they don't see humans anymore they see papers they see numbers they see figures they see statistics the systems are not seeing people anymore so i was just in that phase of wanting to understand why, why did we get to this point? How, how did we get to a point where we completely ignore a child who is standing right in front of our car window there, looking at us, not looking at him, and we just keep going, and it's not considered a crime, it's considered as something usual to just keep going, where this child is confronted to danger every single second of the, his day. Danger of being crushed by a car, danger of dying because of mistreatment or because somebody beat him up or because somebody raped him, danger of getting kicked by the sun or danger of dying from hunger or from cold. And we continue living. I mean, we, we are in a way responsible for that responsible by being silent, by just accepting it, by just saying, okay, this is somebody else's child, so let his parents deal with him. And it's impossible.
0: The number of foreign domestic workers in Lebanon is a staggering 250,000, mostly women. And you give us a snapshot of one person's life, a young Ethiopian woman. Can you talk about when you started thinking about this project? And how did you go about finding the actors and actresses? Because majority of the actors, performers in this film, are non-professional, especially the kids. And Zane, in real life, he's a Syrian refugee who ended up in Beirut with his parents. And his life parallels the character that he plays in the film.
2: It was very important that... I work with people who are in similar circumstances in their real lives because it, for me, I think cinema can have a completely different mission when you're watching the struggle of real people. There's no make-believe there. When you're actually witnessing somebody else's problems. And it's it sort of humanizes the problem instead of hearing about it in the news and figures and numbers. And you actually put a face to that problem and you start seeing it really. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to work with people who bring their own struggle to the film. There's no make-believe in the film. There's no acting. There's no actors. There are people who are here. I did never ask them to act. I just asked them to be, to be who they are in a certain situation, of course, that we have created and that we had written, but also based on a lot of reality and a lot of research and a lot of things we had seen. but. I think that cinema can have a much bigger impact when it's dealing with real people and when it's showing you a real struggle. And I think you come out of the movie theater changed in a way, when you know that this struggle is actually happening in real life. This is not just another film with another actor that's going to be acting in a different film with a different role and a different character. It's a completely different approach. Mm -hmm. And this is what I wanted to do here. Just bring those people with each one his own and her own experience in life and struggle in life and just put it out there on the screen and just let them express it let them express their struggle let them express this i didn't want to also feel like i was in a way manipulating the truth or maybe imposing it on people who have never lived it i just wanted to collaborate with people who have actually lived it because I felt, I felt I was not, I'm not entitled to talk in their names where I haven't been in their shoes. I want to tell their story, yes, but I cannot impose my own imagination of that story on them. Who am I to try to at least dare to be in their shoes? So that's how it
0: happened. That's, that's why I'm working with people who have the same struggle in their life. Is it true that some of the dialogue in the film was not scripted? There was a lot of improvisation. Of course, the script was very solid.
2: I mean, it took like three years of writing the script, and it was in parallel with the research. We would research and then come back and debate and put those scenes in the film. What we had witnessed would somehow find itself again in the script that we had written. And it was a very solid script, but we were also open to just letting it, you know, you have to adapt to the actors and not the other way around. Usually, when you're working with professional actors, the actor is adapting to your script. He's adapting to your dialogues, adapting to a certain mise-en-scene or even camera movement or even uh, lighting. Here, we had to do the complete opposite, which is us adapting to them, adapting to their personalities, to their way of talking, to their... body language to their to everything about them so it was impossible that they just memorize things that i had written it felt fake so we had to in a way adapt what was written to their personality so it was a very thin line between truth and fiction all the time it was this negotiation between truth and fiction the whole time and working with their truth, and navigating it towards the fiction that was already written, towards the dialogues that were written. It's just being open, just being free. It's much simpler than we think. It's just being open to who they are, and not really box them, or try to mold them in a way that they become who you want them
0: to be. It's the other way. You're not just a director, you're also an actress. Did that? also play a part in the way that you wanted the characters in the film to act. I don't know how much my acting
2: um, personality or, I don't know, uh, job had anything to do with it this time the fact that I'm an actress, I think it comes to you naturally. You know how people talk, you know how certain characters behave, you sort of know human behavior well, because as an actor you are very observant and this is how you draw your performances from from the people that you meet, from people that you live with, and you observe, and you're an observant of human nature, I think. So this helps a lot, of course, when you're working, especially with non-professional actors, and just trying to trigger the emotions and the reactions that you need from them in order to have the right performance. You have to trigger the keys, to the right keys. You have to trigger and you have to know what to say, how to trigger those emotions. So, so I think the fact that you are an actor somehow facilitates it. it, helps you. In knowing how to talk to other actors or how to trigger certain emotions. Because they don't come, like professional actors, they don't come prepared. They don't come with their own performance and they've thought about it or they've imagined it. No, they come just raw with who they are. And then you have to start triggering things in them.
0: As I said, Zayn is a Syrian refugee living in Beirut. Can you talk a little bit about how you found him what were you looking for besides he resembled or paralleled the character that you had written in your script introduce us to zayn both as a character in the film as the main protagonist also as a syrian refugee when i was watching the film i realized they come from different places but they share same. the same fate and they're both on the margins of the society and they're both invisible at the end of the day, regardless of the geography that they occupied before ending up in that space in Beirut.
2: Yes, so Zayn is um, a Syrian refugee. He was living in Lebanon for the past eight years. He flew the war from Syria, so he ended up in Lebanon. And you know, being in Lebanon, as a Syrian refugee is not an easy thing when Lebanon has hosted 1.5 million refugees. And this is only the official number. I mean, maybe unofficially, there are much more. So so Lebanon is already facing a big economical problem. So with the Syrian refugees, it's not easy. So Zayn has been living in very difficult circumstances. He was living in a very, very poor neighborhood in Lebanon, um, a very poor house very poor never went to school because of his financial situation uh, at the time we were shooting the film he was 12 years old he didn't even know how to read uh, how to write his own name so Zayn grew up on the streets because he didn't go to school and And he knows what the streets mean. He knows the violence of the streets. He he knows the hardship, the suffering, the uh, disrespect. He knows the mistreatment, the abuse. He knows what it feels to have to struggle, to exist, uh, to have to face racism, to have to face xenophobia, to have to face... uh, And the violence of... When you see those kids fighting, you think what they're not kids anymore you see them fighting with knives with sharp objects you see the way they talk to each other you see the swearing and and you think what is this these they are not kids anymore so so zane has the wisdom and the strength of a child who grew up on the streets facing all of these things and having to prove every day to struggle every day to even exist so he has this wisdom, he has this strength, he has this foul language, he has the the the, the, the those sad eyes that witnessed so much. You know it, you know Zain has seen Zane has seen a lot. I know it without even him telling it to me because he doesn't like to talk Zane. He's a very you know, he doesn't like to to share his whatever he's been through, but I can feel it. I can, you know, put the puzzle, the pieces of the puzzle together from things that he would say or reactions that he would do. And I know he's been through a lot. So I was looking for that when I was, you know, um, describing Zayn to the casting department. I was looking for that, you know, I was telling them I need a boy who's a bit smaller than his age because of malnutrition, who has this tough personality and all, all those descriptions that, uh, that I just told you about. And I was thinking to myself, I'm never going to find this kid. What am I asking them to do? It's, what am I asking life to give me? It's going to be impossible to find Zane. But we found him and the casting director found him on the streets. He was playing with his uh, friends. He was actually feeding a chicken (laughs) and he saw him and interviewed him. And as soon as I saw him, it was very clear to me that, you know, he stood out, that it was going to be him. And the film is supposed to be stateless, so without papers, which means symbolically it's a kid that we don't know what ha- his, ide- his real identity with, just to tackle this symbolism of, of, this, of, of this situation, of the situation of being non-existent, of being non-existent to the world, th- not having any paper to even pr- 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 prove who you are. So it was, in a way, symbolic. He, he, shouldn't be, he, he shouldn't be Lebanese or Syrian or whatever. He's just a child that is deprived from his most basic rights, which is uh, the most basic one is just having an identity. And then it starts from there. So having not having an identity means not going to school, means not even being you know, hospitalized if something happens to you, means not being able to live or work or travel, not being, not being able to live.
0: And there is a scene in the film where Zane is looking for his papers um, because he's hoping to get out. Even as a kid, he thinks he can do that. And when he asks his father where are my papers and his father says you want the hospital bill you want the rent that's overdue hasn't been paid so these are sort of the kinds of papers that he has to deal with every day and this is what he cares about as opposed to a passport or an ID card exactly it was a way of
2: of, yes, talking about that problem too. I mean, for him, I love this scene. I'm happy that you're bringing it up because it's the first time that somebody speaks to me about this scene. I like this scene because I think it's very symbolic of the situation, exactly. And when, he, when his father tells him, we are nothing, we are insects, we are parasites. I think it's something that I also heard a lot from children in this situation, children that I met throughout this whole four years of research, children who have been really in in very extreme situations uh, of neglect and abuse and all that. And they tell you, I, I used to ask them, you know, are you happy to be alive? And most of them would tell me, no, I'm not happy to be alive. I wish I was dead. And they would say, I am nothing. I'm a parasite. I'm an insect. They would use those words. And most of them, don't even know when they are born, exactly like Zayn. You would ask him, how old are you? He would say, approximately 12, 13 years old. So you don't know your exact date of birth. No, my mother told me I was born uh, on a rainy day or it was snowing or whatever. So you've never actually celebrated your birthday. Nobody's ever told you happy birthday or you are important to me. I'm celebrating their birthday. So so these children don't have any sense of their value in life. And they even say it. I'm an insect. I'm a parasite, exactly like the father. I'm nothing. A dog is better than me. I'm trash. When Zane is saying, you know, life is worse than the shoe I'm wearing, he's actually saying it himself.
0: Zane is suing his parents. There is a scene in the film where the judge asks Zane, why is he suing his parents? And what does he want from them? And he says, I want them not to have more kids. At that point, um, his mom is pregnant again. One of the messages that one can read from the film is that you're suggesting, I've heard this from um, some other people who have seen the film, that poor people should not have kids, Mm -hmm. both as a moral imperative and also as kind of a sound policy, that when you are this poor, you cannot take care of yourself. It's an individual choice, even though you don't come out and pronounce it in the film. What would you say to people who, who think like that about the film?
2: I think it's very unfair to really summarize the film to that. Of course, the film is talking about the responsibility of when you are thinking about having a child, the responsibility of love and affection. And, and I think, I mean, it, it would be too simple to think this way because if they really read, really read between the lines, they see that there's another prototype of somebody who's very poor, who is Rahil in the film, who's uh, the Ethiopian worker, who's very poor, is even more poor than the mother and father of Zane, but that is actually capable of love, capable of nurturing her child, capable of taking care of him and giving him love. So it's it's very reductive to just say, we're saying that poor people should not have kids. You know, the film is just exploring the sacred nature of a human being. When a human being comes to this life, we have to understand how sacred this life is. We cannot expect to bring it to the world and just expect life to take care of it. Like what's happening to a lot of children. We're just saying, you need to be responsible of this act. A child is not just the fruit of a sexual uh, desire that you have, a child is much more than that. And it's not addressing it to the poor. and. And actually, the parents in this situation are even victims of that system. It's the system that, that is not allowing education, that is developing ignorance, that is not really helping people to just have, you know, the ability to think about this act, to think about this choice, and just to say, and it's too reductive to just say that. I think, for me... The parents are as much of a victim as their kids, and this is why in the court you have those moments where the parents are are expressing themselves. Because I used to find myself in that situation many times, where I used to judge the parents. Sometimes I would go into a a house, or it's not a house, I would call it a room, because it's also those apartments that are divided into small rooms, and in each room there's a family. I used to go into those places while I was researching, and I was, used to find kids on their own, like three-year-old, four-year-old, two-year-old, on their own, without anyone there. And knowing about all those stories of children that die because they fell off the window because no one was there, or because he, he held an electricity cable, or because he put fire on the house, or because he fell off the roof, those stories, you hear about them every day. So I was in that situation where I was very angry. So where is the mother? Where is she? Where is the father? Where are they? Why aren't they there here? How can she leave her kids? How can she do that? I was in a judgmental situation many times. And I would wait for the mother because I want to give her a piece of my mind and tell her how bad of a mother she is because I, I think I'm a better mom. And I would do that and I would sit down with her, wait for her, And then 10 minutes into the conversation, everything would shift in my head. How did I even allow myself to judge her? I've never been in her shoes. I've never been hungry. I've never been excluded from the system. I've never been in a place where nobody hears what I have to say or where I had to give my children uh, sugar and water because I have nothing else to give them or even selling my daughter to a man because I think she's going to be better off married to this guy or or maybe because it's going to allow me to feed my other kids. I've never been there. I'm not allowed to judge. So in the film, you are in this situation where you cannot really judge and you see those parents and you're in this roller coaster of emotions regarding the parents. So again, just to go back to this, it's very reductive and unfair for people to say this is a a film that says poor people should not have children. There
0: is... Uh, a court scene where the mother faces Zane's lawyer which is played by you you have a cameo appearance in the film and she's addressing you uh, the lawyer saying that she should not be judged for the wrong decisions that she has made in her life for example marrying her daughter Sahar off to the shopkeeper And this is a scene that you tend to see these people as a victim of a system that has produced poverty, disfranchisement, and it's not a personal choice to be poor. So was that also a conscious decision on your part to have that exchange in the film as part of your own ambiguous relationship with poverty and how these people end up where they are? Yes, it, it was
2: exactly inspi- inspired by that. Like I told you, the, those stories where I was always on the, those roller coasters of emotions. And, and at that point, I look at uh, Kausar, who is playing that part, and I say, now you forget everything. I'm not Nadine, the filmmaker. I'm just society that it is judging you. And now it's your moment. You have to seize your moment. This is your only moment where a judge will ever hear you. Because this is her situation in real life. She's been struggling to register her children, and she can't do it. And she's been uh, so many times to courts, but nobody listens to her. So it was her moment. And this is us, society, that judging you. And you're going you're gonna to spit out everything, everything you feel. This was her moment. And it was very intentional in that way. Because it's true. That's not black and white. Everybody has an ambiguous relationship to this problem. Everybody, I think it's very human because this is what we usually do. This is what we say. Why did, is she leaving her children? Why is she doing that? Why can she raise them differently? Why didn't she send them to school? Uh, why is she having so many children if she can't feed them? If she can, so this is what we usually do. But never at any point do we put ourselves in in her situation and say, okay. What do I do if I was in her shoes? So it's ambiguous. You can't can't really have one kind of position regarding
0: that. Something that I noticed in reading the reviews of the film was the absence of this very important character in your film, Rahil. She is a, a migrant worker, domestic worker, who lives in a shack in Beirut with her son. His name is Jonas. She was a domestic worker, but she got pregnant. And as a domestic worker, when you get pregnant, you basically become undocumented, illegal, subject to deportation. So she gets all these odd jobs to try to make a living. And in the process, she's trying to see how she can get a permit, a fake permit. Zane's life at some point and this family's life intersect. So tell us about that character. I don't want to give away too much of the Mm -hmm. film and who they are in real life. How much of that real life was reflected in the film? So
2: Rahil is in real life. Her name is Jordanos. And she's been living a life that is very similar to the life that she's playing in the film, which is she was illegal. She had escaped the family that she lives in because she, you know, she she wasn't happy there at some point. So I think it's her right also to just not uh, uh, not work with those people that she was working with. But the absurdity of the system, uh, unfortunately in Lebanon doesn't allow it. So, so you if you're not happy and if you leave your employer, you're in an illegal situation. And so you become, because your passport is not with you, you are confiscated by your employer. And so you you don't have any papers and you live an illegal life by not being sponsored by somebody. So it's that the absurdity of the sponsorship. And this was a subject that I really wanted to talk about really in the film. So that's why I chose also to create this character. And in real life, Yordanos uh, has been through a lot. Uh, she's been uh, an orphan ever since ever since she was, ki- she was a kid. So she had to take care of her uh, brothers and sisters. And then later on in life, she found herself in Lebanon. And she was living illegally. And she was invisible, like a lot of other girls like her. Because we don't tend to humanize it. To humanize the problem for us is just... You know, those people are living there in parallel of our lives, but we just, again, we don't see them. We don't acknowledge their problems. We don't acknowledge their, the hardship they go through in life. And so I wanted to talk about this. And, and what happened, what was very disturbing and very surprising, I don't know sometimes why life does this also, is that because she was in that same situation, two days after we, we shoot the scene where she gets arrested in the cyber cafe, she gets arrested in real life, two days later, exactly for the same reasons, because she didn't have papers. And she l- goes through uh, the exact same things as in the film. Just I'm telling you this to tell you how much reali- the reality of those characters were, in a way, I don't know, imposed on us in the film, in a way life kept reminding us that this is not a film, this is actually what's happening in real life. And and the, the parents of Jonas, Treasure, were arrested with her also. So when we were shooting the scenes where Jonas is without his mom, she was actually without her mom in real life. We were shooting those scenes and uh, her mom was not there, her mom was in prison. So there was always this this parallelism between reality and the fiction, which also, I think, gave us a lot of strength to keep going because we felt that, that we were part of this mission in a way. We were really capturing the reality of what was happening. It was not a film anymore.
0: What has happened to Rohil and Zane and also Treasure as a result of getting so much uh, public attention because of the film, because they have traveled with you to France, and Zane is here with you in the US. Zane is actually now, uh, thanks to the UNHCR, uh,
2: he's resettled with all his family in Norway. So now Zane is in Norway. Uh, He's going to school. He has a beautiful house overlooking the sea. He has a bed, he has a garden, he's playing with, you know, in the forest with reindeers <laughs> instead of just playing with knives on the streets. So there's a, a huge shift in his life and it's like a fairy tale. I, I just can't believe what's happening now. has uh, decided to stay in Europe. She didn't come back with us when we went to Ghana because she didn't want to go back to the same... Sponsorship, absurd, sort of modern slavery system, unfortunately, that we are stiv- still living in in Lebanon. So she chose a different life for herself. And Treasure is back in Kenya because Treasure in Lebanon also, she was because she was the daughter of two migrant workers living illegally in Lebanon. It's exactly like in the film. They're not allowed to have children. So Treasure is actually a forbidden child. She's a child that should not exist. And did not exist because she didn't have any papers because she can't be registered. So she was exactly like in the film, you know, when, when Asp was saying even a ketchup bottle has an expiry date and, a, and she doesn't have one. It was that. She didn't have any paper. At one point, Treasure was, was sick. We couldn't even admit her in, the, in a hospital. So now, at least... I mean, it's not an ideal situation yet for anyone. I mean, for Zayn, it's almost ideal, but there's still a lot to do on the other fronts. But there's a shift, there's a change, there's a a big change happening, yeah.
0: Who did you make this film for?
2: I think I made it to... I think I made it to anyone who... Anyone, really. I made it to... I I don't want to sound too pretentious and say to anyone to any human being to because for me it's important that we just uh that we just wake up to our responsibilities and 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 we just need to start believing that each one of us has the capacity to make a change and for me it was what's happening now with the film is just exactly what I wanted. You know, people tell me my perspective changed forever. I'm not looking the same way at those children that, that I'm seeing every day, at those people that I'm meeting. It's th- this is, if there's a sh- small shift in, in the way you're thinking, I mean, that this is what, what our, the aim of the film was, without sounding too pretentious, I want to be able to somehow make a change in, in you as a human being.
0: How was your film or how has your film been received in Lebanon your home country It's it's been a shock but it's a
2: positive shock I was afraid that people were going to react to it you know negatively because they don't want to acknowledge the problem or sometimes you know you don't want to see your own flaws, and this is happening in their own country. Of course, they know about the problem, but sometimes you w- don't want to see, you don't want to look. But here, there's a very positive reaction. People are shocked, but we, people actually do want to do something about it, and, and that's amazing. You, you can feel it. You can feel that people are, are more ready, in a way, to make a step. <laughs>
1: Capernaum is nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at this year's Academy Awards in Hollywood. This film is currently being shown at the landmark Shattuck Cinemas in Berkeley, at the landmark Clay Theater in San Francisco, and at the Smith-Raphael Film Center.
0: From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
1: This season, Aswad's sacred music ensemble is showcasing Sufi music in Arabic, which has been preserved and transmitted in the Turkish Sufi tradition of Istanbul. Over the centuries, Sufis from across the Middle East and European worlds were drawn to Istanbul, the cultural and religious center of the Ottoman Empire, to which they each brought the music that had been orally transmitted to them over the centuries. Fragments of this hidden treasure have been discovered through a project of musical archaeology. The concert's director, Isa Goletsen Farajaje, has collected gems from this musical tradition to share with audiences in the Bay Area. The first time that many of these pieces will be performed since they were first recorded in Istanbul nearly 50 years ago.
3: Before my journey with music began, when I was seven... I started to study the Sema, the whirling dervish practice, mm-hmm. and in two thousand five, I traveled to Turkey with my family and with a group of people immersed in this tradition from the United States for the Shebi Arus of Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi, which is the death anniversary of the great saint Rumi. This was the great Persian poet. The great poet. Uh, Rumi. This was in the fall or the winter of 2005. And circumstances had it that we were not to return back mm. to the United States permanently, but rather to stay there. And so from 2005 till today, I have spent a fair amount of time living between Istanbul and the Bay Area. started not as research, it was just... Mm-hmm spending time in the tradition, hearing the music, seeing the practices, and I guess I could say it developed into research later on.
0: You have done a lot of work researching the Sufi music tradition in Turkey. Many in the West are most familiar with whirling dervishes um, who practice a form of sama or listening known as Sufi whirling. What is Sufi music and how far back does this tradition go?
3: This is a tradition that is found throughout the Islamic world. In fact, we can say wherever there is Islam, there is Sufism because it is the mystical path of Islam. And wherever there is Sufism, there is bound to be music. (laughs) And the question of when did this start, the answer of the Sufis is that it started in a time before time, because the practice of listening to music in the teachings of the Sufis comes from the time when the souls were gathered in front of the divine, and the divine called in the most beautiful tones, am I not your cherisher to this gathering of souls? and the souls gathered there were intoxicated by this beautiful sound, by the voice of God, and they replied, yes, you are indeed our cherisher. So, according to the Sufi traditions, the practice of listening to music is a form of remembrance of this primordial beautiful sound of the voice of the Divine. So, for that reason, music is an essential part in all of the Islamic world in the Sufi traditions, as a path of coming closer to the sustainer The desire to whirl, if you will, to turn around one's axis is one that we can see even in babies. You often see babies or videos of babies whirling around in circles. There's no tradition in which they're trained, at least one that we know of, to do this. So there's something that is innate that desires to join this whirling because when we look from the scale of the planets, the cosmos, everything is turning. And when we look on the smallest scale, we see our atoms are indeed as well turning. So it seems that it would be natural for us with our bodies to want to do that as well. Now in the tradition of the Mevlevi order Mm -hmm. of the whirling dervishes, the story is this, that Rumi, Mevlana, Tini Rumi, was walking through a market, or was walking through the area of the brass workers, and or metal workers, and he heard the sound of the hammer hitting the, hitting the material, hitting the metal, and he heard it, he heard it, and suddenly that sound ceased to be just a hammer hitting another material, but it turned into the sound of one thing saying, Allah. Mm. Allah, Allah, saying the name of God. Because there is a teaching in the Quran and that is repeated in the Islamic tradition that everything in creation, everything in the cosmos is repeating the name of God is in this form, state of remembrance. But we as human beings do not hear that. And so... Hearing this cosmic remembrance through the vessel of this hammer, Mevlana started to whirl, and he whirled in a state of ecstasy. So that's how the practice began. Mm. Now, as with everything, it's hard for everyone to attain that state. It's hard for everyone to just be able to actually hear this cosmic remembrance. So it becomes a training. It becomes a studying. So in the case of his tradition, he planted the seed or rather the seed was planted through this practice and those that followed him studied it and made it a practice so that one day they through the imitation through through doing as they saw him do they could also experience it in that ecstatic state
0: in terms of the shroud they wear or the hat yeah where does that come from?
3: so each of those in in that tradition each of those carries a meaning. Because the journey in Sufism is a journey of death and rebirth. It's a journey of, of leaving aside our limited state and coming into the full potential of the human, of the human being in its most excellent form. So, this is what is called uh, to die before you die. <laughs> And this was a, a teaching of the Prophet, upon me, peace and blessings, and it became the central teaching of of Sufism. So, in the Sufi, in the Mevlevi ceremony, in the Mevlevi ceremony of Sema, it's all about representing that process. Because I read so. that
0: the hat represents a tombstone of the ego, and the white skirt is the shroud of the exactly. ego.
3: Exactly. Exactly. And so, in that ceremony, that's exactly what they represent, and that's what happens. The, when the whirling begins, the uh, you cloak is. You detach yourself
0: from your earthly
3: exactly. belongings. Yeah. So it's the, the story of the Sema ceremony, of the Mevlevi Sema ceremony, is one of death and rebirth, is one of, of spiritual resurrection.
0: So, in Turkey specifically, how much work is done to bring back and preserve this genre and this rich tradition?
3: So we see a lot being done currently it began in the 50s and at the time it was really a time of tradition because the last people who trained in the Mevlevi Hanes and in the Sufi Mevlevi lodges during the Ottoman period were still alive and so in that period there was a the government chose to support it as a more as a folkloric thing not not as a spiritual practice but they recognize the folkloric value. And so starting then... Or a religious supported. practice. Exactly. Well, in the case of Turkey, since 1925, uh, Sufi orders have been banned. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't exactly say that it was going to be a religious thing. It was going to only exactly. be folkloric. Though, yeah. though today there's a shift that's happening because uh, just for one, in the case of, of Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi, the appeal is so great. We see this all over the world. And the, the need for those teachings and, and for this message of spiritual growth and transformation is really great. So,
0: this musical uh, tradition, mm. is it? part of the popular culture?
3: It's actually becoming more and more popular, particularly the the instruments. So for example, Mevlana starts his Mesnevi, his famous work with the words, listen to the reed flute. So this reed flute, the nay, has become ne, uh. so so popular. Now you see like, it, I mean it used to be you'd have to search hard to find a nay teacher and now there's one on every corner practically. So of course, you know th- this can be good and bad in terms of quality but it represents the fact that there is a lot of interest
0: whirling dervishes um are synonymous with turkey so in that sense it has been very commercialized
3: mm. yeah i mean it is exactly as you said it has been very much commercialized and it's a big attraction that's one of the reasons why it was this particular practice was revived in the 50s because And I heard from a person who's uh, an expert in the field, I haven't um, confirmed it, but that it was an American diplomat who said, you have this tradition, you all should start, you know, performing it or sharing it. And it was on his advice that they started to put it on stage, if you will, in the 50s. And so this is an interesting point because the Mevlevi tradition is one out of many traditions in the Ottoman Sufi traditions. I mean, there's it's one of many tarikas, one of many spiritual mm-hmm. orders. And, but because of the high aesthetic value of of the ceremony in the, you know, visually, in terms of music, I mean, the Mevlevi music, for example, it's the highest form of Sufi music in Turkey. In fact, it's one of the highest forms of, of Ottoman music in general, uh, spiritual or not spiritual. And so because of, of this immense amount of beauty that could be appreciated by everyone without participating, you're able to watch it and still get something out of it. It was the one that was, you know, performed elevated. first, elevated, and, and continues to be the most, most well-known.
0: Uh, you have collaborated with the Bay Area Music Ensemble, ASWAT for one-of-a-kind concert showcasing Sufi music in Arabic, mainly from Aleppo, Syria, as it has been preserved and transmitted in the Turkish Sufi tradition of Istanbul. This is the first time many of these pieces will be performed since they were recorded in Istanbul nearly 50 years ago. And this genre is called shugul, Tell us more about your research.
3: So this began for me in about 2007, actually, when I first found these recordings and I started to learn about this particular repertoire. And it it continued and, and continued as a just, you know, when I'd find things, I'd be very interested. Where did you find them? They were passed on to me. Hmm. They were passed on to me. From someone who received them, from someone who recorded them, something hmm. like that. They're... These, these were originated uh, in Aleppo. many of the pieces originated in Aleppo, the recordings from Istanbul. The recordings are from Istanbul. so the the history of this uh, of this tradition to me is very fascinating because as you may know, it is the tradition of many Sufis to travel. Now, there's a in in Sufism, the whole spiritual process is called a journey. And that journey often finds an external manifestation as well in physical journeying, and so you have waves. You know, you have waves. I mean, Rumi himself, he, his family traveled, and came to Anatolia in that way. Another great Sufi, Ibn Arabi, traveled and came to Anatolia in that way. And so, around the uh, eighteenth, nineteenth century, I suppose, there was a great wave of Sufis coming to Istanbul from Aleppo. And it's important for folks that don't know to understand that these were all parts of the Ottoman Empire. So he the, he wasn't they weren't going from Syria to Turkey as mm-hmm. we think of them today. Yeah, yeah. They were it's like going from Los Angeles to New York or something like that. And so these Sufis found a new home in Istanbul. They started to bring their particular traditions. These. Sufi orders that were particularly strong in their areas. so one was the Rifai order and then another is the Saadi order the Shadili order, these particularly Arab Sufi orders came and started to open centers in Istanbul and with them they brought their music so they began to sing in Istanbul and and in Istanbul there was already there were already Sufis, there was already you know, the Mevlevi's is a great musical tradition and everything, but they didn't sing in Arabic. They sang in Turkish or they sang in Persian. Those were the two main languages. Arabic was really only in, used in prayer, so only in the recitation of Quran. They weren't singing poetry in Arabic. And so this started a new, a new wave and, and, and opened a new door, if you will, in the repertoire, bringing in Arabic Poetry, Arabic Sufi poetry into the repertoire of of Istanbul. And that's that's what we're looking at. That's what we're studying. And unfortunately, today, very little of this repertoire is still performed. And really, most of it has been forgotten. One reason is that Arabic was not a language spoken.
0: Does it exist in written words?
3: So even that's interesting because this was transmitted orally. So and it what passed happens on from it passed one generation. on from one generation to the next and because the way that these arts the this this tradition not not just the shul tradition but the traditional form of the transmission of arts in particular music is through a thing called meshk and meshk it means like the sharing of love and this is a connection between the teacher and the student and the teacher transmits to the student as they've learned it from their teacher. It's not written down in sheet music as we would see it today. So what does that mean? It's this organic process of transformation. And so the melodies transform, but also the lyrics transform. And that transformation of the lyrics was not always great because it was, you know, imagine people who don't know a language. It's kind of like when you're playing telephone and then, you know, someone says a word, then they pass it on, they pass it on. It's kind of like that in terms of the words because they didn't speak Arabic. They spoke Turkish so they could transmit it. And for the most part, the ones that were transmitting the Mevlevi tradition, which was in Persian, they knew Persian. I mean, they knew it well enough that they wouldn't make those kind of mistakes. But in the case... Of Arabic because these transmissions were happening just like you know we you know two friends are sitting together and I start teaching you a song and you pick it up like that there were a lot of the words were lost meaning so part of this project part of the project with the Aswat ensemble and with the aid of people in Turkey and people here as well members of our ensemble we've worked on rediscovering the actual meaning the actual texts so that they transmit that meaning that they are meant to transmit originally
0: <laughs>
3: talking of this thing of meshk it's by working with their recordings it's like we're have we're studying through meshk over time because if we were to look study this music or find it only through sheet music it wouldn't be alive you wouldn't believe the differences that i found between recordings and written versions because in the recording it's alive and so when we as a as an ensemble study the music from those recordings we're taking it from a live source though recorded 50 years ago and making it alive today when we take it only from sheet music, there's something that's lost. We're going to try to share some of this journey because I really see it as a journey. Like I see it as this interaction, a, a journey that starts in Aleppo and Cairo and Baghdad, that comes to Istanbul, that comes to the Bay Area, and comes through all of these generations of transmission. And so, one, in terms of the music We want people to hear the similarities and hear the differences. So it's going to be similar. It'll be familiar. Some songs will be familiar for people who know Arabic music and some won't. And that's because of how that transmission makes things change. And they will hear poetry of different sorts. So there's some of the famous poetry of famous poets like Shushtari, like Ibn Farid, you know, both very great Sufi poets. And, you know, we'll be singing one of the famous poems of Ibn Farid that begins, we drank of a wine, we, we were drunk with the remembrance of the beloved before the creation of wine or vine, as I remember it right now. There, there'll be some songs like that, that classical poetry, but also we will have poetry that is not known, you know, the majority of the songs we don't know who wrote them. Because often it might have been that someone who was singing it just started kind of impromptu singing a poem or making a poem on the spot, and then that became the song. There are songs that are in praise and honor of Sayyid Ahmed Rafai, the founder of the Rafai lineage. And so you have songs like this. And what I like about that is those songs, those songs you almost never, ever hear outside of their original place outside of a Sufi lodge, outside of a circle. So for us to be singing them on stage in the United States, in the Bay Area, is amazing.
1: Isa Golutzen Farajaje has spent years studying the rich tradition of Turkish and Ottoman classical music. He's the director of Aleppo to Istanbul, a Sufi sacred music shugul concert. Sufi sacred shogul music will be performed by the Aswat Music Ensemble on January 13th from 2 to 5 p.m. at the Aragon High School in San Mateo and on January 20th at the Islamic Cultural Center of Northern California in Oakland. You can get your tickets at brownpapertickets.com. We are offering one pair of tickets for January 13th concert in San Mateo, please give us a call at 510-848-4425. And if you are the caller number three, the tickets will be yours.
0: And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi, is our senior producer, our media partner, is a Status Hour podcast, and Jadalia Ezin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio, or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at Radio at gmail.com.